Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is God's word. All right, you may be seated. If you've got kids to take back to the kids' room, now is the time to do that. And I just want to yeah, briefly remind you, so here at Mission, even though it's the beginning of the school year and, and people are coming back into town from vacation, such as, as my family's done recently, we're, we're still in the middle of the book of Galatians. So that's where we've been uh, throughout the year. We took a break for a, a portion of the summer but we're in the, in the middle of the book of Galatians, and we've called this, uh, this year, the theme of the year, set apart, or, and our vision is to be set apart. And the idea of, in the book of Galatians is that there's a very distinct principle, and that is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is arguing for that being the, the only principle by which people are brought in to the community of believers and into, into the church and into the grace of God at all. And, and he explains different ways that people uh, have been fooled or are being fooled into believing in something else. So this is something that is uh, kind of interesting to study in light of our times, in light of what we've, as a, as a culture, kind of walked through in the past year, year and a half, um, and as a church, because there's been a lot of discussion um, church-wide and culture-wide about what does it mean to, to stay true to the gospel. And what does the gospel really mean and, and such things? So that's what we're doing, and that's why we're doing it. And I'm going to pray, and we'll, we'll jump in this evening into Galatians 4, 8 to 11, which you just heard. So let's, let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm glad to be here with these people, um, friends, and many uh, family in Christ. We're grateful for all who are here, uh, for those who are just here uh, asking questions, um, considering these things for those who uh, who know you deeply, um, and and we, we lift our time to you. I pray that for all of us, no matter where we are, that this would be helpful, um, that it would at the least uh, help us to understand more clearly what this portion of the Bible means. Um, and, and if any of us just need our our eyes to be opened, I pray that you would use your word to do that, and that you would help me to be faithful to it. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So years ago, and a lot of you don't, don't know this because it's, it's been a while, but um, a couple of you who are here, maybe a couple of you who are on Zoom uh, at the moment, were, were there back in the day when we started one of the churches that merged into this church. There was a small group that met in our home, and, and that was kind of the core group that started the church. And we, we were having a conversation about the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I don't remember how it came up, uh, but I remember it was in the negative. And I am the type of person, and you'll, you'll get to, if you get to know me, you'll see this, that I, I want to make sure what we're talking about is kind of accurate or that we're on the right track and so I remember going, are we sure that's, that's really what that sermon is all about? So we decided we were going to study the sermon. Um, we listened to a reenactment of it so we could kind of imagine what it was like to be there. I did that again this week, by the way, 
because I, I just hadn't done it for a while. And we, and we tried to really pay attention to what did it say and what does this mean? And one of the most surprising things that came out of that studying of that old sermon by Jonathan Edwards um, was that the assumption we all had going in was that this was a very raw and harsh sermon about sin and that it was very condemning and that people were very nervous um, about the God that was being talked about, that it was kind of out to the culture, to people who didn't know Christ and were being scared into the faith, basically. And as we learned a little bit about the context and even just listening to the sermon, we learned, oh, this is not the case. Um, This is not who it was preached to. It was preached to Jonathan Edwards, uh, to his church, and then to another church that was in a similar state of a friend of his of longtime religious people who, who were lifelong churchgoers uh, who were just utterly unaffected by what was happening in kind of the renewal of the church. They didn't seem to care. They didn't seem to be moved. They didn't seem to be touched at all, and they were just in a rut, sitting in the pews, going home, doing nothing different. And the, the friend of Jonathan Edwards who asked him to come begged Edwards to come because nobody seemed to be able to get through to these people, and Edwards brought out of his pocket a sermon he'd used at his own church called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he he said to them that though they were religious and though they were here and thought themselves to be very good people, that indeed, outside of Christ, they were not and that they needed to examine themselves because if they were not in Christ, they, they didn't have the comfort and hope, actually, that they thought that they had. And it evoked so much emotion, and this you do here in the history books, that he was interrupted multiple times by people saying, so what do we do? about this. And that's when you know you've preached a good sermon. I've never preached one of those. Um, Nobody's ever asked me in the middle of the sermon, so what do I do? And don't do it now. Golly, don't do it now. So this sermon evoked emotion from these people at that time, in that context. It It was really important. And I think Paul understood the need to evoke and express some emotion here in Galatians. And I think he cared deeply and he wanted people to care deeply about what he was saying. And he asked hard questions. Um, He wasn't afraid to kind of stir the pot. And so that's what I want to look at that this evening. Um, And I want to invite you to to consider his fear. That's the first thing we're going to talk about, Paul's fear. He said, I'm afraid. He's expressing something he's afraid of here. Um, Our temptations... I want to encourage us all to cultivate what I'm going to call a pastor's heart after that, and then suggest that we need to test our faith, okay? So Paul's fear, our temptations, cultivating a pastor's heart, and testing our faith. Um, So you heard it read uh, from Galatians 4, this text. I'm I'm going to just read it again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? 
You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Now I'm putting emphasis into that text, aren't I? But but can you hear and imagine what Paul was getting at? Commentators have called this Paul's emotional argument. He shares that he is afraid. He expresses surprise, bordering on dismay. It's very emphatic. It comes across with exclamation marks in English. It's an emphatic piece of text. He is not cool, calm, or collected. And this is, this is a written work probably done through a scribe. Can you imagine if you could get in his head? If, this is, if you had to dictate something to, for somebody to email and it came through this strong, imagine the real feelings you might be having, right? If it weren't being dictated into an email. And what brought Paul to this place? That's the question. Why is he here? Why is he expressing so much emotion? And it says he's afraid the people of Galatia are going back to what they converted away from. That's his concern. So then we have to ask, so what was that? What, what did they, where were they coming from? And he tells us, he said, they did not know God. Um, they were enslaved, he says, to those who by nature are not gods. And, and we have to assume, because he's talking to people in, a, in Galatia, this is a formerly Greek uh, society, the Roman Empire is here now. Um, these were false gods, idols. There was probably some polytheism um, in, in the mix. The, the Roman god structures were very political um, by nature. And he's saying these not gods, these false gods, gave you principles, and, um, and we talked about these last week, principles that are weak and worthless. And they were things like that you have to do this and don't touch that. These are these basic elementary principles. And we discussed last week how he said they are worthless if you're trying to change your desires. If you're trying to change your desires, the desires of your heart, they're worthless. And it's a pretty stark picture of where they'd come from. It's basically paganism. It's straight up paganism. The gods are fake. Um, You were like slaves to fake things. And the principles you built your life upon were weak and worthless, is what Paul is saying. And he says, how in the world could you go back to this? Um, Why do you want to re-enslave yourselves to this? But here's the trick. Here's the surprise. You're thinking probably, if if this is a first time reading this, oh, they're going back to their Greek or Roman ways. But they're not. They're not doing that, actually. What are they doing? This is what they're doing. If you were to strip it down to a very simple statement, They were listening to other Christians who were trying to convince them to follow things that were taught in the Bible. Seriously. We've been reading this in the book of Galatians the whole time. Christians from from Jerusalem had come and were teaching them that they needed to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. And circumcision is in the Bible. So these are Christians coming and teaching them something that's in the Bible. Wow. And Paul is saying that, doing that, is like going back to the weak and worthless principles that you had before you were even a Christian. Huh. That's surprising. And Paul, Paul didn't say, and this we've, we've, tried to been, we've tried to be clear on this throughout the year. He, he did not say, 
don't worry about what the, the Bible says. He didn't say, don't worry about what the law says. He merely has said the law is worthless and weak to change your heart, to change your desires. The law has a place in your life. You should care about what it says. You should, in fact, do many of the things that it says, but it does not change your heart and change your desires. And and the New Testament, the message of Paul is this, that because it can't do that, God did something that could do that in entering into the world in Jesus. And as Romans 3.26 says, Jesus becomes the just and the justifier, which what does that mean? He's the one who's kept the law. He's just. He is actually just. He's kept the law. And in his death, he becomes the justifier. He offers to you what you cannot do with the law because he kept it in his death on the cross. Now, there are many in Christian circles who do not know this, and that's frustrating. Or they're early in their understanding of it, and they will worry and fret over laws like circumcision or dietary laws or ceremonial or purity laws. Something will be read in the Bible, and it's like, oh no, I have to keep this to be accepted. And there, there are many people who are there now, and they're, they're wrong. You don't need to do that. Um, some of these people might be there because they do not believe the gospel. They read the Bible, but they don't believe the gospel. And others are there because they, they need to grow. They need to understand how the gospel works and how the Bible works, that the Bible is telling us a story. It's painting a picture, and you have to take it as a whole. You have to understand there are preparatory parts that the Old Testament is laying groundwork for what Jesus is going to do. And, and if you haven't been taught that, it, it's not going to make sense. So it could be immaturity, you need to grow, or it might be that you don't believe the gospel. And this is what was happening in Galatia, especially with circumcision and these feasts and festivals and things like that, is that Paul is saying, if you listen to these Jewish people who were either, you know, who were either rejecting the gospel or didn't understand how the gospel fit, if you listen to them, you're doing the same thing you were previously doing when you didn't even know God. You're going back to the weak and worthless principles. Elsewhere, um, Peter, Jesus' disciple, says that there would be false teachers in the church. And of course, we, we heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount telling us that sort of thing too, right? But Peter said there would be false teachers in the church, um, the, the types that are wolves in sheep's clothing. They would teach destructive heresies. And what would those be? They'd be denying Jesus, not the Bible, Jesus. And they would tempt people to do what they do. They would return to the old principles of living. Peter says, like a dog returns to its vomit, which is gross. We have three dogs. We watch this all the time. And it isn't fun to watch, right? And, and that's kind of what Paul is saying. Like, that's a weird thing to go back to. Why would you do that? Um, and that, of course, is coming from Proverbs 26.11. Paul is saying, trying to be justified by the law was not pleasant. It did not work. It didn't change your desires. In fact, as I said last week, it either puffs you up and makes you conceited or else it crushes you because you can't keep it. Why would you go back to this? Why would you go back to this? 
okay? So Paul's fear is that the people he loved and had delivered the gospel to would fall into this alluring, very natural feeling temptation of going back where they came from, even if it looked different than what they actually came from. So let's look at this, these temptations, our temptations. And I say it in the plural for a reason, because we're accustomed to being attuned to like the tempting vices, I think. Um, the vices, right? Like, I don't know, drugs or alcohol or something. You know, it's the, the, the bad thing or stealing, you know, like some of you, I don't know, you're probably all better than me. I have indeed stolen things in my life. And there is something nice about getting something for free instead of paying for it, right? And so every once in a while, do I have a thought of like, you know, that Maserati looks great. I don't like paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for things. You know what I could do is I could jump in there and just go. Then I obviously think about all the repercussions that could come from this, and so far, haven't done it. But we're, we're used to that. The vices, right? Like the temptations. But Paul here is warning about tempting virtues. And, and in other words, I, I was thinking about it this way, and I, I, I want to work this out. There are dangers, I believe, on both sides of the narrow gate that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll read that again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And often, I think when we imagine this concept, and I apologize if you're not from Tucson on this one, but I think we think of it like when you're going, when you're going into golf and stuff. And golf and stuff has this giant gate-looking door, okay? And then there's the little kid door. And when you're a kid, right, you want to go in that little door, except, you know, that's reversing Jesus' metaphor here. But it's like there's a clear, obvious choice. There's the, this is the big door. The arcade is very easily accessible. There's the little door over here. You're going to have to go through the little secret, you know, path to get there. There's, you just look over there, big door, over there, little door. And in fact, I think a lot of Christian educational art has drawn it this way and makes it pretty obvious and pretty stark um, in the past and now. So here, put up the old one, the other one, the other old one. No, no, now you know my slides. All right, so... Um, okay, so here's, here's the old piece of art, right? So the, the Broadway down below, the, the big gate, and you go under it, and this is old, so it doesn't look too exciting anymore, but, you know, you've got people who are kind of, uh, you know, they're doing fun stuff, they're playing some instruments, they're having a grand old time, and then they're going to be in hell with this crazy-looking guy. And you're like, ooh, shoot. You know, and this image is trying to tell you that going into the party with the fun-looking people is going to end you up in hell. Um, and then over here in the narrow gate, there's a stairway, which is meant to be hard work, right? That you're going to have to trudge up this thing. But the good news is you're going to be in an awesome city with two flying guys. Um, and it's going to be really great, right? So that's very clear. There's the big gate that looks nice, hell, then there's the little gate that looks bad, heaven, right? And then the more modern version now is even more, this is very stark, so it's like, this one, it makes you feel like it's very obvious, 
So I love the speed limit sign, by the way. Like, you're going to get there at 75 miles an hour. But this one is like, hey, this looks great, and you're going off a cliff in about 30 seconds, if that, and you're going to die, but, but palm trees. And this one is like, you're going to die on a cross, obviously, but hey, good thing there's, uh, I don't know, Abu Dhabi back there, right? So there are these clear two things that you look at, and you look, you know, this is the way that we tend to imagine this, is you go, that looks really terrible, but I can tell out beyond it, there's something good, and so I'll go through this terrible stuff to get to the good stuff. And this one looks really good, but there's a big explosion at the end, right? So I'm not going to do that. Um, it can feel like one is for good people who make good choices, right? And the good choices do hard things. Work hard, you know, be nice, sacrifice yourself. The other is for bad people and or people who are just idiots and can't see 10 feet in front of them, right? Who, um, who go like, I love trees, you know, ah. And, and, they, and they suffer what they deserve, right? They go off the cliff because they're morons. So... There's this poem by Emily Dickinson, uh, and it's called You're Right, The Way is Narrow. And, and listen to how, the, I mean, Emily Dickinson, here's a, here's a person with a sharp mind reading Jesus' words. And she says, you're right, the way is narrow and difficult the gate, and few there be correct again that enter thereat. Tis costly, so are purples, tis the price of breath. But with the discount of the grave termed by the broker's death, and after that there's heaven, the good man's dividend, and bad men go to jail, I guess. So here's her poem, right? The good people get their dividend. They get what they deserve, and the bad people go to jail, I guess. Something at the end, clearly she's going, is that really all there is? To this. But the way Paul instructs the Galatians and the way Jesus consistently taught, now you have to understand his Sermon on the Mount, who is he telling people not to be like? The Pharisees, the religious people, the most scrupulous law keepers and Bible believers of his day. I think the image has to be a little bit different. There, there's dangers on both sides of the narrow gate. And so here's my other image that you already saw. So I think, and not to say Jesus imagined a door just like this, but here you've got one of these kind of ancient entry gates where they would open it up for larger loads, but there's a smaller pedestrian gate in the center. And the reason I use this is to say on, on one side of the narrow gate, there's the temptation of our vices, and on the other side of the narrow gate, there's the temptation of our virtues. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. He's telling these people, look, you lived a life, and maybe there were vices, but he, these elementary principles of the world that Paul talked about in Galatians are things that people generally say are good things, like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, do the right thing, follow the rules. That's what they did before. They weren't nuts. They weren't just murderous clowns. They were people who were trying to be good people, and he was saying, remember how that didn't work? That wasn't good. You've come to Jesus, who's given you his righteousness, and now you're trying to not handle, not taste, not touch again. You're, it's, it's, you're still on the wrong side of the narrow gate, and it's your virtues. 
that are keeping you there, which is why I think an image like that is helpful. See, there are, trust me, I'm not downplaying vices. I'm not suggesting that any of you go out and get a new addiction or anything like that, okay? But on the other side of this, consider this, pride will tell me, will say something like this, nobody can tell me what to do. The vices, right, I'll, I'll do what I want. I'll steal, I'll kill, I'll destroy. Nobody can tell me what to do. Um, it's my life, my body. Nobody can tell me who I am or what I can and cannot do with myself. Um, it, it can say that, but the same pride can also say, I have lived and loved well. Nobody could ever condemn me. I've done what's best. I make the best decisions I can. I'm on the right side of history or the right side of truth or reason or whatever. Like, I really am a pretty, let me, why would I ever deserve anything negative from God? That's pride. And I hope you can see as I say that, if, if I were talking out to our society, the, the left or the right of our society, they both do both of these things, right? There's no safe group. They, they all do this stuff. There are rules that both sides feel that they keep. There are vices of both sides. There are areas that both sides would say, like, look, don't judge me for that. It's not bad as, as bad as what they do. And this is why Christianity does not belong on the left or the right. It is neither. It is a narrow way. It is an alien thing. It is justification by grace alone. Paul argued circumcision, feasts, and festivals. He didn't say you can't be a part of them. He actually didn't say that. He just said they're not going to reconcile you to God. And in our culture, there's a long list. But here in our church, from what I know of, of most of you, I need to say something more like the amount of causes or, or justice causes or the, the right beliefs you have or getting science right or anything like that. None of it justifies you. Only Jesus. And you could champion a lot of causes as a Christian, but not because it justifies you. And that's really, really important. And Christians who love the good news of Jesus will always care deeply about this precise matter. Very, very much. And that leads to the third idea, cultivating a pastor's heart. Okay? Paul here emphatically pressed, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Like I said, this is a very emotional argument. And I can understand this. I've actually, it's really landed with me. Um, probably for the first time reading the text this time, this, this portion, I went, whoa, I, I, I feel that. I, I haven't in the past when I've read it. And I think part of that's this last couple years or year and a half. For me, seeing people in the church, big church, our church, not living in something like unity or love toward one another, that, that's been something for me. And as in Paul's day, I think it's because we've latched onto things we think make us better than others, or really that make others intolerable to us. Like that's happened in our community and just in about every other church I know of, that there have been people who've been like, I, this is the better way, this is the better belief here, or that I can't be around somebody who says that. And this is really a new manifestation of the law, whether it's matters of political opinion or scientific opinion or most common matters of personal 
preference, and it's very often intertwined into holding on to resentments. I've been, I've been hurt. You don't care. Um, and I don't want to feel that or deal with that. So I withhold my presence, my help, my support. And what is that? It's punitive. That's what laws do. That's, it's a punishment. And, of course, what happens, the result of all that is division where Jesus would have unity. I've been encouraging you all as a church to ask this question. If Jesus would have someone following him, why can't you walk with that person? If Jesus would allow this person to walk with them, you can walk with them. So the one result is division. Another is exclusion, as in Galatia, the exclusion of people from the gospel that God hasn't excluded. We want people to have the gospel and then get everything right the way that we understand it, to walk with them. The gateway into the kingdom of God is to believe the gospel, and people are going to be all over the map in the kingdom moving toward Jesus. It's a messy thing to think about. That is the church, though. We can't exclude people if they've actually come to Jesus just because they don't see everything our way. And worst of all, it diminishes the glory of God that God would get from his church. So when people see, I mean, you know what pains me? What pains me is all this stinking news that shows how much Christians don't like each other at all. It stinks. And why does it stink? Just like, because it's shocking that people don't like each other? No, that's not shocking. But it's shocking that people who follow Jesus can't get over it. And as a pastor, this eats at me. I hate it. It's absolutely frustrating. And it can feel like I, we are wasting our time. I found myself wrestling with God saying, are you at work here? How is it that we claim the same Jesus, the same Bible, and clearly do what Jesus prayed we wouldn't do? Because in John 17, he went on and on and on about us being one as he and the Father are one. Why can't we do this? Right? And I, and I watch, as I think Paul did in Galatians, us, our people, being far more influenced by these new voices that come in. You know, these guys come in from Jerusalem and go, hey, you have to be circumcised. They're like, Paul never said that, but okay. I mean, and I feel like we're, anybody on YouTube, we're like, okay, you're on YouTube. No. Golly, that anybody can be on YouTube. Just, you know that, right? Okay. And, and we're far more influenced by the fears and frenzies of secular ideologues. And, what, and I've thought, are you listening we try, we bring you to a table and every week we tell you it's the body of Jesus broken for you. It's the blood of Jesus shed for you. This is all the hope we have. This is our unity. This is our strength. This is all we have. Why are we still so anxious? Where is the fruit of the Spirit? Do any of, any of you ever feel that way? Now I have to say though, right? because I'm not yelling at you. For those of us who know God's grace, that get, gets counteracted in your heart pretty quick. Saying this feels weird because here's the truth. I know, I know how far I fall from exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and how patient 
God has to be with me every single day. You ever think about that when somebody's driving you crazy and you look at God and you go, oh, what's it like to live with me? Because we don't really rely on Jesus as we should. We don't give him everything that he, we should be worshiping Jesus, bowing before him in praise every single second. Our hearts should be filled with gratitude. We should have no fear. And we, that's not where we are. But that, because of that, and because Jesus has accepted us, is why we should move toward one another. We should see that deep down in our souls, right? And we truly don't have the right to judge one another. But, but, I think we should care. This is my point. I think we should care. Paul had an emotional argument. I just shared with you my emotional argument. Like, it eats at me, and I don't think that we should judge each other, condemn each other, but we should care. And I know none of us are apostles like Paul, or, and, you know, very few of us would say, I'm in vocational ministry, so it can feel kind of like, well, I guess it's not my job. I'm here to say it is your job. We all are called to the same commission. Jesus When he left this earth, he looked down on all the disciples gathered around him and pronounced to all of his people for all of time, go into the world, make disciples, teach them all that I have commanded you. That is your calling in life as a Christian. That's the commission that Jesus left with us. So we should care. We should care. We should care enough to push past our desires to disengage, our lack of desire or our desires, yeah, to disengage, our lack of desire to engage. So on the day you wake up and go, I don't want to deal with those people because, man, there's totally a great feed on my Instagram, which is, I feel that way because I like sports. And like today, I was on, you know, I was on Instagram for a second and there are all these like, there's this new documentary about Ryan Sandberg. I got his autograph when I was a kid. That sounded really fun. Coming here is work. I get it. Like that's it. Being around people is hard. I know. We all know. But we should care enough to move through that, right? And we should care enough to pursue gospel unity. We should care enough to press into what it means to be justified by grace alone. And when we see friends of ours who who don't see that or don't live by that, who are always getting hung up on some other, I've got to be this or I've got to do this or all those people stink, we should care. We should care enough to be zealous that others enter by the narrow gate. And at our church, in this specific church, I, and I love this about us, but I think we need to work on it, is we are good at being understanding and giving space to people. But somehow in that quest, I think we allow people to drift into their new law paradigms constantly, and we don't ever say, that is not the gospel's call. And because, look, if, if they go into their, into their vices, right, there's damage that can happen. If they go into their virtues, there's damage that can happen. It can make your soul toxic. We should care. We should care enough to feel something. And then add to that all the other skills of still being considerate and not barraging people and having genuine concern and not just expressing our own anxieties. There's skills to use when you care, but we should care. Okay? And then we must test our faith. In our day, 
Especially in a church and culture like ours, this makes us nervous. And I know it sounds like pressure, but the Bible encourages it over and over. I'm just going to show you that for a second. James, Jesus' brother, James 1 to 2 says, trials test the genuine nature of our faith. So we should consider them as pure joy, he said, because they give, why? They give us a window into our hearts. When we go through a trial, it shows us what's in our hearts. Peter, Jesus' disciple, 1 Peter 1, 7, says a similar thing, that trials are like a, a fire for refining gold. They test the inner reality. And your faith, when it comes through a trial that tests you, is beautified. So tests are good. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 tells the church this, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And he says, because Jesus is in you, and then he says, unless you fail the test. In 2 Corinthians, what was he referring to? The test there seems to be around the idea of reconciling and forgiving one another. In 1 Corinthians, people had done some terrible things to one another. He wrote a really harsh letter. In 2 Corinthians, he's telling them, be reconciled to each other, forgive one another. And he expressed a fear that he would show up to a church full of quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And the test to see if this church's faith is genuine is, can you forgive and leave your disputes behind for the sake of Jesus? It's not, the question isn't, does the gospel, you know, teach we can and should reconcile? It does. Jesus reconciled us to God the Father by suffering on our behalf. So it does teach that. The question is, do you believe the gospel and therefore have the spirit of Jesus in you that will lead you to reconcile? That's the test. If you're unwilling to reconcile, that's not looking good. In James and Peter, the test is endurance. uh, Trials will come. Jesus said, we will have trouble. The test is not how Well, does your life go when you go through the trials, you know, like, or do you avoid trials because you're doing everything right? It assumes trials are going to come, as Jesus did. The test is this, do you come through the trial more Christ-like or with a greater awareness of your need for grace and the beauty of the gospel? If you look at your trials and you can see, I come through them more, like, grateful for Christ This is a good sign. In Galatia, the test is, do you remain dependent upon grace alone? It's not, do you always make the right moral choice? It's not, are you getting all the Bible's commands perfectly right? It's, are you anchored in grace? And I need to say again, look, it's not that you don't care about the law. I want to make sure to impress this. Jesus loved the law. It's not that you don't care. It's a great way to understand God and please God. You can even use it as a missional resource. In Acts 16, Paul has Timothy get circumcised, which is the thing he's telling the Galatians not to do, but it's a strategic thing so he doesn't have trouble reaching Jewish people. He never would have believed this is how I get to Jesus, but because he's in Jesus, he goes, you know what, maybe this is something I should do. And that's a very important nuance to hold on to. But the test in Galatia is not do you follow the laws and get it right. It is, do you see 
that your justification in God's eyes is in nothing other than Jesus? And do you apply that to others? Do you consider other people to be in Christ, you know, because of nothing other than Jesus? And therefore treat them like a brother and sister based on the fact that they are in Jesus. Do you encourage them, as Paul told Timothy, encourage them like a mother, like a father, like a brother, like a sister, rather than reject them as an outsider because they annoy you? Or do you withhold acceptance from them based on their falling short of some part of the law as you read it? That's the test. How much do you anchor in Jesus? Here's a signpost to look for if you're, if you're going, I don't know, I'm not sure. Here's the inward look. How hard are you on yourself? How hard are you on yourself? Are you always doubting that you're safe and secure? Do you doubt that anything could bring you closer to his heart? Do you doubt that he loves you, that he looks upon you and smiles upon you, that he sees his child, that he loves These two questions are one, that this next question and those, those two are, are similar. Because when you question others, when you say, when you're a fruit inspector and you're always looking for what's wrong and what's off in their lives, I can almost guarantee you, you do that to yourself. You're hard on yourself. If you struggle with that critical eye, beating up on yourself and others, you haven't necessarily failed the test. You're being presented with the solution. Where will you run for consolation? Because that will change how you respond to other people. Will you run into one of your vices that makes you feel better? Will you run into one of your virtues that makes you feel better and superior? Look, um, I do... I do good, unlike those people. Maybe God will honor and bless me. Do you run to that? Or do you run to something that's like, oh, well, who cares? I'll just go be me for a while. Don't run there. Don't run there. This is the message of the church. Those are both sides of the, those are both sides of the broad gate. Do not run there. No good shepherd would guide you there. No good Christian would encourage you there. Run to the cross of Christ. Run to the cross of Christ, where you'll find the only one who is just being the justifier for you. And when you run there, when your soul finds rest there and its safe haven there, then you'll bring other people there. Then you'll say, come with me. Then you'll make disciples, and you'll invite people in to the narrow gate. We're going to enter into a time of confession right now, and then we're going to come to the table and we're going to sing. And what we do for confession is we take two minutes of silence, and I want to just impress upon you the question of this sermon, which is, do I look to anything other than Christ? And I gave you the signpost, look for where you're hard on yourself or where you're hard on others, and that might lead you to that answer. And bring that to Jesus. Here's, here's what Jesus has said to us. We can confess our sins to him. He's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. I mean, what an incredible thing. 
we can come before the God of the law, the God of the universe, and he says, look, I'm, I'm your safest place. You could tell me all about it. I already know. And when you confess your sins to me, I, I am faithful and just, and I will forgive you of all of your unrighteousness. And then we're going to approach the table. And after that time of confession is over, I'll be here to serve from the table. And here Jesus is saying, this is my body. This is my blood. When he offers this to his disciples, what's he doing? He's saying, this, there are no other ways. There's no other way. He's saying, I'm, I'm the just and I'm the justifier. This is my body. When I laid my life down, the, the other sides of this wide gate are you can, oh, you could run off into your vices or you could try to be a good person. Um, but both of those are the elementary principles. They're weak. They're worthless. They will not change your heart. They will not reorient your soul. Jesus doesn't say this to be exclusive. He says it because it is. He's the only one who can change our hearts. And he does so in mercy by his body breaking for us, by his blood, mercy for our vices, but it's sweeter than our virtues. It's something utterly unique. It is the narrow gate. I'm going to pray for us, and then there will be two minutes of silence. Father, help us to anchor our souls in you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for entering in. Thank you for being a lawgiver who gives good and beautiful laws. You've told us incredible things. You've told us who you are in your law. You've given us principles to live by that the whole world knows are good. You've taught us in your law to live for you first and for others second. And to trust you for our own health and life and preservation. You've given us a beautiful, self-sacrificial, but glorious and safe hope. And then because we don't keep up with your standard, you entered in, you were just, and you lived by the law that you created, and you're the justifier because you died in our place. And you offer yourself for us just to receive, just to trust so that our hearts can be changed, so that we can love your law, so that we can live out of it, out of a renewed set of desires. And so God, please help us to see it. Show us in which ways we don't trust you. Lead us back to you and help us to love one another. In Jesus' name.